The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 21. The word of God speaks to us. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us, apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is God's word to us. Good morning. Good to be with you all. For those of you who don't know me, my name is JJ. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Frontline, and it's my joy to open God's word with you this morning. Pray with me over this text. Lord, we ask that you'd meet us in your word. Lord, some of us came in here today discouraged. Would you fill us with fresh hope? Some of us came into the room today wondering if you see us. Lord, would you give us a fresh sense of your attentiveness towards us as a good father? Lord, some of us came into the room today feeling ashamed. Lord, would you cover us with your grace? Through Jesus, we pray. Amen. In his book, How to Think, that I've mentioned to you before from this stage, Alan Jacobs tells the true story of a woman who surprised herself by leaving a hate-filled cult she'd been raised in her whole life. And her awakening began when, no matter how much she continued to harass them, she was consistently treated with kindness in online interactions with a person she had been raised her whole life to hate. Now, our first thought might be, what a wonderful account of what happens when a person stops believing what she's told and learns to think for herself. But Jacob says the really interesting and important thing is that's not at all what happened. That woman didn't start thinking for herself. She started thinking with different people. And Jacob says that thinking independently of other human beings is actually impossible. And even if it were possible, it would be undesirable. 
thinking is necessarily, thoroughly, and wonderfully social. Everything you think is in response to what someone else has thought or said. And here in our passage, here in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 21, Paul's going to warn us of the danger of trusting our own instincts too much. Under the illusion that we're finally thinking for ourselves, we can actually end up listening to voices of misleading counsel more than what Paul calls the wisdom of the cross. If you're a Christian here today, you serve a crucified king. And in serving a crucified king, that puts you so totally out of step with all the most popular designer spiritualities in our culture today. So you're going to have to be on guard. We're going to see here in our passage that Paul's going to urge us to be on guard against three things. Becoming self-deceived, becoming seduced by the spiritually arrogant, and becoming spiritual orphans. Look again at the beginning of our passage, verses 8 through 13, where Paul wants us to remember that we serve a crucified king, so we have to be on guard against becoming self-deceived. Verse 8, already you have all you want, Corinthians. Already, apparently, you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. Would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God's exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. We become a spectacle to the world, to angels, to men. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We're weak, but apparently you are strong. You're held in honor, we in disrepute. Even up to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul's saying, I'm not threatened by you, but I am concerned for you. Corinthians, you're living self-satisfied lives in a spiritual matrix, but it's not real. You don't really know kung fu. You think because the Spirit has empowered some of you in some really visible ways, speaking in tongues of men and angels, for example, it's almost like you're already in heaven, like you've already arrived. Some of you are so spiritual that engaging a prostitute apparently won't affect you. Others of you are so spiritual that the sheer physicality of engaging with your spouse is apparently beneath you. Paul says, here's what you need to understand. Christians live between the first and second coming of Jesus, between his crucifixion and the eventual consummation of his kingdom, the already and the not yet. A Christian who never thinks to pray for healing has what we could call an underrealized view of where we are in God's unfolding plan. His power is broken in through the person and work of Jesus, and there's healing available as we pray in faith. On the other hand, a Christian who thinks confessing sin is depressing or negative or beneath their spirituality has an overrealized view of where we are in God's unfolding plan. We're not home yet. There's a lot of sin left to confess. Listen to how Paul describes this already and not yet at the beginning of his letter. Verse four of chapter one. I give thanks to God always 
for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were noticed, enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord. We're not lacking in any spiritual gifts collectively on one hand, but we're still waiting for the revealing of Jesus on the other. We've been enriched in all speech and knowledge on the one hand. We still need to be sustained to the end on the other. We're not home yet, Paul's saying. Verse 8, already, already you're rich. Already you've arrived. Like kids on a long road trip who incessantly ask, are we there yet? Paul's saying, hey, I wish we were already there too. Would that all the tears and the suffering that all of us have experienced were already banished as Jesus' promises he's going to someday do in Revelation 21. But we're not there yet. Just look at my suffering, Paul's saying, verse 11, to the present hour. And so his relationship to the Corinthians is fragile because he's seeking to appeal to them as they make terrible choices. And worse, they think they're making great choices. And even worse, they think they're more spiritual than Paul, their spiritual dad. You can hear the tension when Paul says to them at the end of the letter, verse 37 of chapter 14, if anybody thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. You think you've arrived spiritually, Corinthians? You think everything's up and to the right for you? Your faith has become a social advantage for you in the city? In fact, you're expecting a parade any day now? Man, that's so weird because for me and my fellow apostles, following Jesus has led to the opposite experience, being reviled and persecuted and slandered, being viewed as dishonorable, weak fools, suffering hardship, going hungry, back-breaking manual labor. Corinthians, there actually is a parade, but it's not that kind of parade. And we're in it, but not like you think. As the spiritual fathers of the church, we're actually bringing up the rear in chains. We're being paraded like prisoners of war so people can mock us and throw rotten fruit at us. And sometimes it's not just the world doing the throwing. Sometimes it's you, Corinthians. Verse 10, we're apparently fools for Christ's sake, and yet you are wise in Christ. The Corinthians have come to that dangerous place where they appear to themselves as wise and strong and worthy of honor. And Paul looks to them increasingly like somebody foolish, weak, and dishonorable. And he's saying, hey, as your spiritual dad, I can't help you as long as you keep seeing things backwards. So I'm going to have to lean on some loving irony to try to wake you up. Notice how he describes what looks foolish and weak to some of the Corinthians. Verse 11, that the apostles are hungry and thirsty, poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, working with their hands, reviled, blessing in return, persecuted, enduring, slandered, responding with entreaty. What Paul's doing is subtle but wise because if the Corinthians want to look down on Paul for living this way, they're going to end up 
having to look down on their own Lord for the same reasons. They follow a master who knew hunger after fasting for 40 days and being tempted to make bread by Satan. They follow a master who knew thirst as he hung on the cross for hours with his tongue thick in his mouth. They follow a master who knew what it was to be buffeted as guards covered his face and struck him, saying, prophesy about who hit you. They follow a master who knew what it was to be homeless, saying to a man who thought following him would be easy, hey, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And now here they're social elite in Corinth who are scornful of anybody who works with their hands for a living, and yet their master knew what it was to labor and work with his hands for the first 30 years of his life. Their master, when he was reviled, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, refused to revile in return. If you're graced to have your life begin to resemble Jesus in any of these ways, you might receive some of the same pushback from others both inside and outside the church. People might try and talk you out of it or conclude you must not be powerful or impressive. Self-elected spiritual gurus might try to offer you a cheat sheet or a shortcut or an easy way out. In short, there's a lot of people just outside these doors waiting to sell you a Christ without a cross. So Paul's saying, beware of the self-deceived spirituality of anybody who finds imitating our Lord in his suffering and service to be beneath them. Secondly, Paul says, because Christians serve a crucified king, we have to be on guard not only against becoming self-deceived, but also against becoming seduced by the spiritually arrogant. Becoming seduced by the spiritually arrogant. Look again at verses 18 through 21. 18 through 21. Paul says, Some among you there in Corinth are arrogant, as though I wasn't coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God doesn't consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? The rod, a well-known biblical picture of the need for parents to discipline their kids. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen: Folly is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Now, at first glance, Paul might sound harsh and authoritarian to some of you, even angry and violent, but he's speaking metaphorically, and we know he's speaking out of love and fatherly protection because of his very next words, which we're going to look at more closely together next week. Notice what he says in the very next breath, chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. You're shamelessly bragging to anybody who will listen about your enlightened spirituality, Corinthians, but you're tolerating a behavior that those who don't follow Christ in your city wouldn't even tolerate. Here's a family being torn apart, and your neighbors are mocking the way of Jesus. Where's all this crazy coming from? Notice Paul says there in verse 18, some in your church are arrogant. This word 
arrogant here in verse 18 means literally to blow up or inflate something like with a bellows. And so it came to mean over time, figuratively, to have an exaggerated self-view, to become painfully and unnaturally puffed up with pride. So it makes sense that Paul is tracing their problems back to arrogance, back to spiritual pride, because spiritual pride left unchecked always leads to spiritual perversion. Spiritual pride left unpunctured keeps swelling until it blows up and destroys everything in its blast radius. Now the whole church in Corinth is in danger of being seduced by its most arrogant members. Spiritual arrogance is a particular kind of arrogance. Spiritual arrogance comes from thinking we've earned from God what can only be given by God. And what we think we've earned will inevitably come to think we own. So really subtly, over time, we become self-appointed gurus of our own esoteric spirituality, and we slowly start to become untethered from the historical reality of our crucified and risen Lord. So stop and ask yourself this morning, what aspect of God's grace might I be treating as something I've earned instead of something I've been given? When we allow ourselves to be seduced by the spiritually arrogant, they inevitably lead us into tribalism. Tribalism is tearing our country apart at this moment in which we live, and it grows out of spiritual arrogance. I'm not straining to make a cultural connection here, I promise. Look back at verses 6 and 7, just prior to our passage that begins in verse 8, and notice what Paul says. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what's written, that none of you may be, notice, puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Verse 6 tells us their arrogance is in favor of one against another. Tribalism is being united by what you're against instead of what you're for. Tribalism flourishes in the soil of self-righteous ingratitude towards God and Christ. Paul knows that. That's why he's applying the only permanent antidote to their problem which is the cross. The only permanent antidote to tribalism is the cross. And that's because factions, by definition, betray that we've grabbed hold of something besides Jesus to brag about. Because if we're clinging to Christ and boasting only in his cross, it'll always unite us and not divide us. Division's a byproduct of pride. And if I've grabbed hold of some trophy I'm taking pride in, I've grabbed hold of something besides Jesus. Notice Paul says, verse 19, I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. The good news is, is that even if the spiritually arrogant manage to seduce God's people for a season, they always ultimately get exposed for their lack of power. We can use words to speak truth and to spin truth, to confess sin and to justify sin, to explain our choices and explain away our choices. 
The danger of smooth speech and rhetoric is how well it can dance away from ever being nailed down, how well it can slip through our fingers and never have to give an account, how well it can say self-contradictory things with a poetic flourish, how well it can truss up spiritual nonsense and make it sound respectable. But it'll always ultimately be betrayed for lacking power. I was struck by this difference while attending a Hope is Alive graduation. For those of you who don't know, Hope is Alive is one of the premier and most Christ-centered drug and alcohol recovery programs in the nation. We're so blessed to have them in our city, and we see people finding freedom there constantly. The 12 men and women who stood on the stage the day that I was there spoke plainly through tears, all of them, of how they should have all accounts been dead except for the power of God that reached in and rescued them, pulled them into sobriety and honesty and humility. Here were people using words the way Paul wants us to use words, strength and weakness, words no longer used to spin the truth or to puff themselves up, words used to point to the power of the cross, to a risen king who rescues us when we're at our worst and makes us sons and daughters. And what their testimonies illustrated and what Paul's trying to get the Corinthians to understand here in our passage is this. Don't pretend to offer anybody power if you're not pointing to the cross. In her number one New York Times bestselling book, Untamed, Glennon Doyle has this to say. I find myself unable to let go fully because to wash my hands of the Jesus story is to abandon something beautiful to money-hungry hijackers. It would be like surrendering the concept of beauty to the fashion industry or the magic of sexuality to internet porn dealers. I want beauty. I want sex. I want faith. I just don't want the hijackers' commodified, poisonous versions, nor do I want to identify myself with hijackers. So I'll say this. I remain compelled by the Jesus story, not as history meant to reveal what happened long ago, but as poetry meant to illuminate a revolutionary idea powerful enough to heal and free humanity now. But it wasn't the power of poetry that pulled those 12 graduates out of the pit, was it? It wasn't the power of an idea either. You can go and ask any of them yourself. They'll tell you it was the power of a crucified and risen king who conquered sin and death through the blood of his cross in space-time history. It really happened. Paul says, verse 20, the kingdom of God doesn't consist in talk, but in power. He kicked off his letter really boldly in verse 18 of chapter 1 by saying, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being rescued, it's the power of God. The word of the cross is the power of God. Paul invokes God's kingdom. God's kingdom is at work wherever his kingship is both displayed and obeyed. The cross looked like the defeat of Jesus, but the seeming weakness of his cross was revealed to be his triumph. And so what that means for you in this room today is through his broken body that we will celebrate and feed on by faith when we come to these tables here in a moment. Jesus can break the power of anything that's ever enslaved you. 
So Paul's saying, don't ever settle. Don't ever let yourself be seduced into trading power for mere poetry. Paul's saying, anybody that claims to offer you spiritual power but doesn't point to the cross has nothing to offer because the power's in the cross. Third and finally, Paul says, because Christians serve a crucified king, not only do we have to be on guard against self-deception and seduction, we also have to be on guard against becoming spiritual orphans. Becoming spiritual orphans. Look again finally at verses 14 through 17. I don't write these things to make you ashamed, Corinthians, but to admonish you as my beloved children. You have countless guides in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. He's writing, verse 14, to admonish them. He's trying to tenderly warn them of danger as their loving father. And he's appealing to their shared history. He's throwing down a spiritual paternity test. I'm admonishing you, verse 14, my beloved children. It's me, Paul said, your spiritual dad. Remember me? The guy who endured suffering and danger just to bring you the good news about Jesus? You know my heart. I'm not trying to rub your face in your mistakes. I'm trying to pull you up into maturity. I carry you in my heart. I'm up nights worrying about you. I'd do anything for you. We're all in danger of becoming spiritual orphans when we forget our family history. The people that pointed us to Jesus, the people who told us the good news, the people who said, imitate me as I follow Christ. Notice how he reminds them, verse 15, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He became their spiritual father because he pointed them to Jesus, not himself. Our condition was serious enough that God the Son chose to be born in human weakness so that he could live the life that we've all failed to live, so that he could graciously die the death we all deserve to die, so that we have an opportunity to come to know God as a loving father instead of merely as a just judge, a loving father who through Jesus and Paul's words in Colossians 1 has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. This is the gospel, a word that means good news. God both desired and did everything necessary to rescue his enemies, turn them into sons and daughters, and make it permanent. That's what his love is like. It's profound and it's permanent. Paul's saying, as you think on this, it should produce in you slowly over time a settled confidence that you have a good father who loves you because of a suffering savior who paid your way and that's the only thing that's going to give you the stamina needed verse 16 to be imitators of my ways in Christ when you finally start to realize you're safe in the father's love that's when you're finally set free to work much harder than you ever worked when you were driven by fear of punishment Fear that God was going to get you. And it's because of the 
finality of God's rescuing love that Paul can say at the conclusion of this letter, verse 58 of chapter 15. Therefore, in light of all this good news, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not gonna go to waste. It's not meaningless. We also slip into spiritual orphanhood when we fall into false loyalty. Because we're all by nature forgetful, we can all by nature become ungrateful. We can frustratingly end up listening most to the people who've loved us least. And the stamina to keep spiritually parenting in the face of this resistance only comes from a heart that had the right motives in the first place. There's really no perks for spiritual parenting. There's no shine. This is hard, humble, quiet work. But spiritual orphans are constantly letting themselves get sucked into false loyalty to gurus, wannabe spiritual mothers and fathers. But gurus are nothing like spiritual mothers and fathers. Gurus will go to your head. Fathers will go after your heart. A guru will tell you what you want to hear. But only a father will tell you what you need to hear. Spiritual gurus will ultimately puff you up and smash you down, but only fathers will build you up. Gurus will always seek to sever you from your suffering and try and resolve the tension that's inherent in following Jesus. He warned us there would be suffering. So spiritual mothers and fathers invite you to share in suffering for Jesus' sake. No smoke and mirrors, no spiritual bait and switch, Spiritual mothers and fathers shoot you straight. Just like when your mom was kind enough to warn you right before she poured the hydrogen peroxide on your knee. (laughs) This is going to (laughs) hurt. Spiritual mothers shoot you straight. Verse 16, Paul says, be imitators of me. I'm not asking you to do anything I'm not willing to do. I'm not asking you to start doing anything I'm not already doing. Spiritual mothers and fathers have nothing in common with self-styled gurus. Lastly, we become spiritual orphans when we fail to inspect for faithfulness. Paul's thrown down a spiritual paternity test. How do you apply a spiritual paternity test? How do you spot true spiritual fathers and mothers? Two things. Listen carefully to their words. Look closely at their life. To remind you, verse 17, of my ways in Christ As I teach them, verse 17, everywhere in every church, my words and my ways are out there for anyone to inspect. And the way Timothy, his faithful spiritual son, carries himself in coming to the Corinthians only brings the picture into even clearer focus. Put these things to the test, Paul says, and I think you'll see the difference clearly. So I think the charge to each of us in the room today is don't wait until it's too late. Decide now who you're going to listen to when you're spiritually confused. Decide now who you're going to listen to when you're tempted or vulnerable or discouraged, disconnected or in danger. If you wait till those crucial moments to decide who you're going to listen to, it'll probably be too late. Put a stake in the ground today while your mind is clear. Who are you going to trust? What will be your criteria If your criteria is what feels right or who agrees with you 
or who will always offer you comfort or an easy way out, you're setting yourself up to become a spiritual orphan. I'll close with a story. A lifelong missionary named Doug Nichols, still alive today, remembers meeting one of my heroes of the faith, Francis Schaeffer, now with the Lord, all the way back in 1966 when Nichols was just a young man. Nichols is at a missions conference in London. He's volunteering to work on a cleanup crew late at night. It's 12.30 in the morning, and Nichols is sweeping the front steps of the conference center when an older gentleman approaches and asks if this is the location of the missions conference. Nichols tells him it is, but that everybody's in bed. He has a small bag with him. He's dressed really simply. He says he's attending the conference, so Nichols says, let me see if I can find you a place to sleep. So Nichols takes him to the room where he himself has been sleeping on the floor with 50 other volunteers. And seeing that the man has nothing to sleep on, he lays some padding and a blanket on the floor. He gives him a towel for a pillow. The man says it'll be fine, that he appreciates it very much. Nichols recalls, as he was preparing for bed, I thought to ask him if he had eaten. He hadn't, as he had been traveling all day. So I took him to the dining room, but it was locked. So after picking the lock, I found (laughs) cornflakes and milk and bread and butter and jam, all of which he thanked me for. As he ate and we began to fellowship and talk about the great things God had done, I asked him where he was from. He said he and his wife had been working in Switzerland for several years in a ministry mainly to street youth and travelers. It was wonderful to talk to him, hear about his work, about those who had found Jesus. And when he finished eating, we went to bed. The next day, I was in big trouble. The leaders of the conference really got on my case. Don't you know who that man is on the floor next to you? It's Dr. Francis Schaefer, the speaker for the whole conference. (laughs) I didn't know we were gonna have a speaker. I didn't know who Francis Schaefer was. I didn't know they had a special room reserved for him. <laughs> and Nichols says, after Francis Schaefer became known around the world because of his books and I'd read more about him, I would think back on this occasion many times. This gracious, kind, humble man of God sleeping on the floor with the volunteers. This was the kind of man I wanted to be. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this picture of a real spiritual father in our passage. Lord, by your grace, would you make us the kind of men and women who can say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Do it by the power of your spirit, we pray. For Jesus' sake, Father, amen.